Hi, everyone. Welcome to Coaches on the Rise, the podcast for all coaches of all sports. I'm your host, Celia Slater. And today we get to visit with Don McPherson. Don is a speaker, an author, and an activist. His most recent book is called You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity. In this book, Don traces how he was raised as a young boy in our culture, not necessarily a culture that teaches you how to be a man, more teaches you how not to be a girl. And he traces the way that he grew up all the way through his college career at Syracuse University as a very successful quarterback and the runner-up for the Heisman Trophy in 1987, all the way through his pro career, and how he had this turning point and this aha moment of what his life work was really going to be about. Such an interesting conversation. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. I know I did. Please enjoy my conversation with Don McPherson. Welcome, everybody. Um, Today, I have this distinct honor of visiting with Don McPherson, who is a former former NFL and collegiate quarterback. Um, He played at Syracuse University uh, and then went on and played in the NFL for the Eagles and the Houston. What were they called then? Were they the Houston (laughs) Oilers? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'll let you tell them more about your history. But but right now... um, Don just recently released a book called You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity, um, which is a fantastic book. I have so enjoyed that book, Don. It's, it's, I wish it would be required reading for every athlete on the planet because it was, it's so insightful and your story, you know, how you weave your story into it is just beautiful because you're not like talking like off the cuff. You're really sharing your story and how this has all come about. So, um, you know, and, and I've got to tell you, Don, like I went back and I was watching some videos of you playing at Syracuse. And I mean, you really were a fantastic quarterback. And I mean, so just so y'all know, Don, cause he's not going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this about Don. He had an undefeated season. Um, he was the runner-up to the Heisman Trophy in 1987, correct? And a lot of your teammates, by the way, I saw videos, they were really pissed off about that. They felt you deserved the Heisman that year, and you got uh, kind of shanked on that deal. Um, you have been inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, and I'm sure several other Hall of Fames along the way. Um, and just a fantastic football career, and I, I can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about this whole path, but do you mind sharing a little bit about your path? Cause this podcast is for coaches of all sports. Mm. So they may not know a little bit about your football career, but then also how did you get to where you are now? Like from football to now, how far back do you want me to go? Because I can... <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start at, uh, let's start at uh, Syracuse. How about we do that? Okay. Well, no, uh, but let me go back like way back for, okay. just, uh, go for uh, it. A brief moment because I think this is part in many ways part of my history is that um, I'm the third I'm the fifth child of a family that was very close-knit and a third boy and both of my older brothers were professional athletes Um, but before that one played for the San Diego Chargers and one was ranked second in the world as a middleweight boxer and this was when I was at Syracuse but way before that which was more significant was that when we were little when we were kids they were the stars of the little league football team or the pop Warner team in, in town. And I was the third son. 
And two years in a row, I literally ran off the field and chickened out, crying, ran back to the car, and my father came looking for me, where did you go? Because I was supposed to be in a drill. And, and so that, that history is, is significant because um, it took me some time. I wasn't like this automatic kid who was an automatic star, the third son of, of you know, of, of, of this family. Uh, it took me some time. And so going to Syracuse to me, when I was in high school, my father would go to my brother's games in college, he played University of New Haven before going on to the NFL. And I, I went to high school games by myself. You know, my family wasn't there. And all of a sudden, I got good, and my brother went to the NFL, and so my parents saw me play. And then the scholarship to Syracuse was totally out of the – I was not expecting it. I was not thinking I was going off to play big-time college football. And Syracuse was 2-9 and nine the year before I got there. Uh, it was a program that, to me, was local. It was just New York State, and I wanted to stay close to home. And um, amazing things happened, you know, not right away. Um, I got to Syracuse. I was hurt. My first year, I was in a cast. I registered for classes, for those who don't remember, back when we used to register for class by going in and checking in on every, you know, standing in line. Well, I stood in line in, on crutches, uh, having had knee surgery before first day of classes my freshman year of college. Uh, my second year, separated my left shoulder after starting a couple of games, starting my, my first game. And then finally, in my third year, my registered sophomore year, I started playing, and as I say, the rest is history. Wow, that is fantastic. And so when you finished playing, you went on to work for the Center for the Study of Sport and Society. Yes. Um, and, but you, you played football in a total, I think in your book, you say 19 years. Yes. And so I started when I was 10 and retired from Hamilton, excuse me, the Ottawa Rough Riders in the Canadian Football League when I was 29. Yes. And then you went on to the Center for the Study of Sport and Society, and that's where you kind of went down your act, started your activist life. Yes, that's when I met Richard Lapchick. I actually met uh, Richard Lapchick in the, in the spring of two, 1994. Uh, and then I went back to the Canadian Football League for that summer. And in the middle of that season, he contacted me and offered me a job. And uh, my transition from football to higher education or to the workplace uh, was the seven-hour drive from Ottawa to, to Boston. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to ask you more about uh, Dr. Lapchick and everybody a little bit later. But... Uh... So you've been just doing this work ever since, like as a speaker, an activist, and a now an mm -hmm. author. You know, is this your first book, Don, or have you it written is. one? This is the first book I've published. I wrote one when I retired that I never published, um, but, but this was the first one I published. Fantastic. And I, I'm serious. I love this book. And honestly, I could talk to you all day. Like, this should be a part one, part two, <laughs> part three conversation. Um, but just for our audience's sake, um, you know, in this concept of, you have some different terms that you use, and I just wanted to see if we could define those for our audience. So, for example, um, just the concept of masculinity yeah. is char anything characteristic of what it, we define as a man, right? Is that how you would define masculinity? Yeah, and I, I think, to me, it's the set of rules that are assigned to, to male-identified people. And, and starting at, at birth, starting actually in utero, right? As soon as we know it's a boy, we start assigning all these qualities to those boys. Those become, in the book I refer to as the mandate um, of masculinity and the performance of masculinity. They start to define the rules around being male, yes. Great, all right. So then the next definition, uh, according to Don, is that I'd like to ask you is privilege. How would you define mm -hmm. privilege? You know, privilege is, is, a, is a hard thing 
to define because it's fluid. And, and people, we, we walk in and out of my privilege. The first chapter of my book is black man with privilege. So black man denotes maybe not as much privilege. Um, and yet as a man, I have a tremendous amount of privilege. And so privilege is something that you don't work for. It's, it's not something that you, you, you try to achieve. It's not something that you even know you have until you see it in, in its juxtaposition with those who don't. And I have a friend now who she's been blown away by the, by the, the film Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, and she's just struck with how much privilege she has in her life um, mm -hmm. when, when looking at what, what, what other people are experiencing. And so it's not something that, that you know you have until someone says you have something I don't and what you have is a privilege. And you don't, and it doesn't mean that you have this lavish life or that you have it easy. It just means that there are certain things that you don't have to deal with that other people do. Yeah, I, I heard this speaker in a TED Talk once and he said, you know, privilege is invisible to those who have it. Exactly right. And it's, you know, I thought that was a really, really great um, definition. And, you know, circling back a little bit to the masculinity definition, one of the terms you use in your book is called the dogma of masculinity. Um, could you share like a little bit of what you mean by that? The, the dogma is, is part of, it, it, it's a very strict dogma. It, it, it's actually even more strict in many ways than some religious dogma because it is so unforgiving and so strict. When I ask men, what does it mean to be a man? And I could ask PhD counselors on a, on a college campus and, and, um, and I can ask uh, a group of middle school football players, what does it mean to be a man? Though both of those groups will give me the same exact definition. They'll tell me, be tough, be strong, don't cry. Um, and then they'll you throw in things like provider and protector and, and be athletic and, and some of those. But it's a very narrow set of rules. And the, the irony is, it just, just like in, in, in many other dogmas, is that it doesn't define us whole. It just defines that part of ourselves that we are going to demonstrate on a public, on a public and regular basis. And, and so that's the, that, that dogma leads to uh, and it's part of what I refer to as the mandate, at least is the performance of masculinity. And that performance is, what do we do every single day to show that we're a real man? I, even as I do that now, I, I raise my shoulders. Pump up your chest, yeah. So, exactly. It's like, what's a real man? And that's part of the, the dogma of masculinity. That's awesome. Thank you. And how about misogyny? Because I know a lot of people use that term, but I'm not sure a lot of people know what it means. You know, I, I always, um, the title of the book is You Throw Like a Girl. And I always ask men the worst insults you could ever hear as a little boy. And I go back to that great scene in the film, The Sandlot, which is one of my favorite films of nine boys that just play baseball. They don't have an, an, an opponent, right? So there's, there's no antagonist. But the antagonist in, in, in the film is this term. When these two groups of boys meet each other and they throw every insult you can possibly go. In other words, you can call a guy, that's my dog. He's a cool cat. He is like a truck. You can refer to a guy as an inanimate object or an animal, and it's a compliment. But if you compare him to his sister, you throw like a girl, you run like a girl. If you compare it to his sister, it's the ultimate insult. That's the core of misogyny. That, that's the last thing you're going to call me. That's the worst, that's the ultimate insult that you're going to call me. And I always, and you know, people hear the misogyny is the hatred of women, and men will say, well, I love women. Right? You know, I have a mom, or I love women because I'm, I'm a heterosexual male. Like, and yet, would you trade places with a woman? Would you, would you live in, in, in her, and, and immediately they kind of fall, fall back a little bit. That's misogyny, is, 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 the, is 
that there's a, a level of underlying disdain for who women are and, and, and how they live their lives. And you share a really great story in your book and your chapter, uh, you throw like a girl about you and Sydney fighting. Uh, you want to <laughs> tell, talk about that? Cause it totally illustrates what you're saying. It, it was, we would, we, I was 10 years old. I was in uh, public school. I went to Catholic school and public school. And my first friend in my new school was uh, a kid named Sydney Crawford. And we were good friends. We just met, you know, but we, you know, it was part of my class and we were on the playground at lunchtime. And we were throwing rocks at one another because that's what little boys do, right? We found <laughs> something to do. And, and in the midst of that, we started calling each other names. And it was, I think I called him a sissy uh, or a punk. And the, and the last thing I heard was, I ain't going to be no punk. I ain't going to be a sissy. And the two of us started fighting. And we got into a fight, a, like a real fight, like rolling around in the, in the gravel. And I, and I remember um, that I didn't like to fight. <laughs> I remember that this was not who I, who I am. Um, and, and as I thought about it, here we were, two 10-year-old boys who didn't understand misogyny, didn't understand sexism, but we did understand at 10 that the worst thing you can call each other is a sissy or a punk or a girl. And so there's misogyny working uh, in the lives of, of two 10-year-old boys who didn't understand what that, what that meant, but fundamentally, that's what was at the core of our fight. And so... Very often, we, we, we have these big terms that, that we want to de deconstruct on a very high level, but they're at work in, in the way that our kids and navigate, and boys especially navigate, you know, that gender identity. It's really interesting to me, Don, because, you know, like, in my own life, I watched my nephew grow up, Aiden, who, you know, he just has this beautiful heart. He's a very soft-hearted kid, and and I've just watched him as he's gone through the socialization process, not even with my sister, because my sister's not ever going to use any of that kind of language with him. She adores his spirit, you know? Right. But we're at a family gathering, and he was walking through the room, and something had happened, and he was crying. And so, you know, one of my relatives screams out at him, quit crying like a little girl. And, you know, I went over to my relative, and I said, are you telling him not to be like me? Because I'm his aunt, and I'm a girl. Right. And, and, the, and the relative, he looked at me, and, and honestly, Don, this is the response I get 99% of the time when I confront men on language that they use that's demeaning to women, is they honestly say to me, and they don't, they, they just look at me and they go, I never thought of it like that. Right. I, I, I didn't even realize that I was saying that. Yeah. Um, and, and do you find that? It's like, it's almost this unconscious bias in some ways for, for men that, you know, they grow up this way and it's just kind of unconscious till you bring it to the surface. You know, it, it is unconscious, but at the same time, um, I think men know it in, in instinctively because we know how we've been raised. I always say, and one of, the, one of the things I get quoted on most is that we don't raise boys to be men. We raise boys not to be women or gay men because we're always telling boys what not to be. And, and so there is this level that we understand it. We may not intellectualize it. We may not think that, to, to the point that that, um, that family member said to you that it wasn't personal to you, but in general, it was, and, and there's, a, there's a, a level of homophobia that, that's, uh, that is associated with, with that language to boys. Um, one is, is this, yeah, it is a general, be a boy, be a, be a man, man up, right? That's the best thing that you can be as a human being. And so anything less than that is what you, you, should not, you should not be demonstrating. And so 
he had no other way of saying that. And because he's, we are so conditioned to see women as less than mm-hmm. men in that regard. And the homophobia piece comes from very often with, with boys, if they demonstrate anything that takes away from that masculinity that I talked about, being tough, being strong, there's this fear. And, and this is where homophobia is a fear. This is a fear that boys are going to give up some of the privileges of being male. We live in a patriarchal culture where men have tons of privileges. We talk about things we didn't work for, things we didn't try to achieve, things we don't even know we have, just like that. Your family members say, oh, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was something that I was, I was acting on and perpetuating uh, with my language because I'm so, so conditioned just to seeing that as being the norm. And, and that is you know, one of those underlying issues that is around us every single day that, that men don't necessarily see until someone like you points it out. And I, I wanted to ask you another question around, you know, because you talked a lot about your father in your mm-hmm. book. You had that chapter. It was really, really wonderful um, chapter about your father. And sometimes I get confused on the, the rhetoric around you have to see a man to be a man. Mm-hmm. And because I feel like that's just another way of minimizing or devaluing the role of women in shaping young men. You know, because I, I don't remember growing up saying I have to see a woman to be a woman, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know if there's just, but it seems like there's some kind of rite of passage that women are not, a, are qualified to help men reach that rite of passage where I, I feel like I'm the accumulation of both men and women who have impacted my life. Mm-hmm. And, and I just wonder if you could address that because I feel like we're excluded. Like, I don't want to be excluded from shaping my nephew. You know what I mean? Right. I love him. I, I adore him and I want to be a role model for him. So I, I, I actually hear that differently. Um, I don't hear that as the exclusion of women. I hear that as, the, actually I hear that as the exclusion of men. And what I mean by that is we do not intentionally or deliberately raise boys to be men. This is why I say that we don't raise boys to be men, we raise boys not to be men. Because we don't intentionally and deliberately say, what does it mean to be a whole man? If I have to witness a man, in other words, if I have to see a man to be a man, then, exactly, then that man is not bringing me his whole self. All I'm getting is what I can witness. It's, it's like I always say about, um, you know, in sports, like, you know, be like Mike. Well, I can't be like Mike. I don't even know Mike, right? <laughs> I want to see Mike take out the garbage. I want to see Mike deal with his children. I want to see Mike, you know, do all the things, take, empty the dishwasher, right? I want to see him do all the things that we do as human beings. Love someone, buy someone flowers, do all those things, right? Not just the thing that I can see him do on TV. And so this notion that, that you, you have to observe a man. You know, I tell a story in the book about a boy in, in the airport. And... Um, he was being a little unruly. It was many years ago. In fact, there was a time when I wanted to dedicate the book to the boy in the airport because this was a little three or four-year-old boy and his mom was trying to control him and he was bouncing off of everything. And ultimately, when she didn't want to deal with his energy and his emotions, she said, be a man. And he shut up, he dropped his head, and he sat down. Wow. And I remember the feeling, my heart sank because I was enjoying okay. watching him. But I also remember real, watching him shut off his emotions, shut off his fear, and she didn't say that. She said, be a man. Wow. And this is what he got from watching men, was that being a man means you don't show your emotions, you don't show your feelings, you shut down. And that's my problem. That's why I say that being, if, if you have to see a man, be a man, what you're going to get from watching that man is someone who's like my father, stoic, 
shut down with his emotions, not being communicative, not being engaged in, 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 in it was my father was barely engaged in the family. He was there, but he wasn't in, fully engaged with his emotions and his, and, 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 and his whole self. And, and so that notion that you have to see a man to be a man, to me, I don't hear the exclusion of women because women have always been there raising our boys. It, I, I hear that, that, that men are not, they were not intentionally and you, and you as a woman cannot say that, yes, being a man is being tough and stoic and strong. It's also being loving and caring and passive and submissive. And I, I had someone the other day challenge me on, on use, using the word passive uh, and submissive as being a whole person. I said, aren't you submissive to your God? Aren't you submissive to something greater than yourself? Aren't you submissive to a coach, to a team? When you want to learn and grow, it's part of growth and learning. If we're just like, I'm not going to be submissive, I'm going to then you're just being ignorant and stubborn and you're not going to grow. And so that wholeness of, of masculinity that, that I often refer to uh, is rooted in that it's not some place that you can just learn, to your point, just learn from a man, from seeing, observing a man. Because all you're going to get from that is a lot of, of that stubborn, kind of closed-off understanding of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And earlier you were talking about, you know, you've asked a lot of people what they've, consider what does it mean to be a man right. and so now with all the insight all the introspection you've done i mean you know really looking at yourself and how you're you were raised and and i'm going to talk a little bit about you as an athlete and your privilege as an athlete and whatnot but how would you define what does it mean to be a man now well you know it's it's not even from my experience that that the definition for me is broadened. it is because of a culture around you. When, when you talk to um, people in the trans community, you talk to people in the LGBTQ community, uh, when you understand that masculinity is, is a continuous, not, it's masculinities, right? There are just so many different forms of how we express uh, being male. And so um, I, don't, I don't define it, I define it very, very broadly. And, and to me, it, it is extraordinarily broad. It's no different than I would define femininity in many ways, uh, because it's all the same qualities uh, that, that we assign, and, and, and very often we, we try to assign virtue to certain qualities because we think that's what being a woman is or that's what being a man is. Um, but but I, it, it's the, the broader it gets, um, I think you, you can start looking at, I look at, at the masculinities, I look at the, the very broad spectrum of, of, of male expression. And, and this goes really well with the one part in your book where you said, you made a statement that you said, we're never gonna reach gender equality until men blank. How did you finish that definition? Until men realize we're gendered beings. Until men realize that there is this thing, gender, that impacts our life. And this is part of why privilege is invisible. So um, white people don't have race. When we talk about race relations, right? It's, it's all people of color. And, and, and when we talk about gender, it, it's women in the LGBTQ community. It's, it's not cis heterosexual white men, right? And so, um, and, and so women are saying, we want gender equality. And men are saying, what's gender? Like, what's this thing you're talking about? It goes back to that very narrow understanding of masculinity. We, men will own manhood. We'll own being a man. We'll defend our manhood, but we don't understand masculinity because masculinity requires this much broader, the acknowledgement of this much broader sense of, of, of qualities of, of who we are. And so it, until men realize that there is this whole broad spectrum of, of qualities that are impacting our lives every single day, we are sensitive, we are emotional, we are vulnerable, and those are levers on our lives. Whether we, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, it's one thing. That's why 
you know, the whole host of, of, of problems that men go through, uh, including things like leading up to suicide. Uh, it, until we realize that all these, these uh, elements and, and emotions and, and, and elements of our humanity are, are weighing on us and, and influencing our behavior, we're going to continue to live in this very narrow understanding of masculinity, and we're not going to understand gender, and we're not going to understand what gender equality even means. That's exactly right. Like, I, I really, and, and I, like, from a feminine uh, or from a female perspective, like, I always, my thought was, we're never going to achieve gender equality until men can value those feminine qualities in themselves. And, and also, you know, like, because if they don't value it in themselves, they're never going to value it in me. That's right. Or any other women in, in the society. And I, I always love the yin and the yang, the yin and the yang, you know, symbol, because it's, it really, it really shows me, like, if I want to be a really, um, how do you say, complete and whole person, I want to be both competitive and compassionate. You know, right. I want to I be both, you know, have a lot of initiative, but I also want to be nurturing. You know, like, I, I want to have all of those qualities. And so I feel like that's a lot what you're saying is we, we want men to be whole. We want women to be whole. It's really not about these definitions of masculinity or femininity it's really like what makes a person a whole person functioning exactly. and healthy you know exactly. and and it, i think it really does take away from our ability to be happy you know yes. and, and playing in those those different roles um so i want to go back a little bit don and talk about your um career as a football player because i think your transition from football into your next part of your life really brought up some feelings in you around that privilege and your identity as a football player. And if you don't mind, I'd really like to read um, this one chapter. I mean, this one little paragraph um, from your book. It's a really powerful paragraph. It's right when you found out that you got your last year's contract mm. with Ottawa as a third string quarterback. Yes. And and then this is, and then you started crying, and this is what you wrote, and this is the paragraph. I was well aware of why I was crying, and it was not the demotion or dramatic reduction in salary or the end of my career. In fact, it would have been a relief if they'd cut me and sent me home to get on with my life. For that, I was prepared. Instead, the tears expressed an irony that cut deeper than I was willing to examine. Despite my great love for football, I never wanted the game to define who I was as a person. Yet for all the opportunities and privileges it provided, I realized that moment how limiting that privilege had been to my life as a whole. At that moment, I was forced to recognize and understand the person I was without the game of football. Like that's, that's really powerful in looking at your career, mm. I mean, I could see that impact. I could just see you sitting there going, wow. Yeah. Can you talk about that, how that really felt and, and all, what you meant by all of those things, you know, and that identity and all that? All that? I, I was, the, the year prior to that, this is what, what and it's, it's funny, hearing you read that it made me emotional because I, I, I kind of relived it. But the year before that, I had retired. I had decided that I was done playing football. My heart, my heart was no longer in it. Uh, I moved everything. I had an apartment in, in Canada. I had an apartment on Long Island here in New York. And I had a house in New Jersey that I still had when I was playing with the Philadelphia Eagles. I got rid of the house. I, I moved everything to Long Island. 
I decided I was going to move on with my life. And I got a phone call from, from Adam Rita, who was the head coach in Ottawa. And he said, Hey, listen, we, new head coach, new owner. We want to you know, bring you up here to be the starter. And, and I said, no, I'm really not into it. And then they hired, they brought in another quarterback guy named Danny Barry, who I had a lot of respect for. And so they called me again. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to put one last year in and, and go have some fun and go play football. And I was supposed to be the, you know, challenge Danny for the starting job and, and all that. Uh, and I got there, my heart wasn't in it. And, um, and I didn't care. I didn't care to get better. All the things that, um, that I loved about the game were not there. And so when that moment happened, and I'm sitting in this office, and in, in no offense to, to old Lansdowne Stadium, but this old beat-up stadium, and, and, and I've got these three men who, who said, you know what, we, we, we should cut you, uh, but we like you. And you're, you know, you're a good guy. You're a good ball player, a good teammate. Um, and we want to keep you around. And we're going to pay you the league minimum if, you, if you'll stick around. And I realized, you know, everything you just read, it wasn't the money. It wasn't the, the playing time. It wasn't any of that. What was I doing in Ottawa? You know, like, it was like a wake-up. Like, what am I doing here? I should be home. I should be getting on with my life. I should be moved. I should, why is it? And I spent my entire life from the time I was 14 years old trying to dictate and not let football be who I was and not letting the game be who I was. I went to school in a shirt and tie in high school and college because I didn't want people to think that was just some football player who was there, uh, some, some kid who was there just to play football. And so here was this moment when I realized that um, I, had been, I felt like I'd been duped. I felt like I'd been, I'd been played. Um, how did I end up in the, in the situation? And that's, that was the big wake-up call that there's something – something bigger that I'm missing in my own life. And I, I got to tell you all, um, the way you talk about your life as a football player and the, the privileges it afforded you, and I, I just highly recommend you, you read it. And especially if you are a football player and any athlete, quite honestly, because I think a lot of athletes now, they enjoy yeah. a lot of privileges that they get, like, I'm walking by the training room this morning at a university and, you know, looking at all the athletes and all the treatment they're getting just for their, their injuries and, you know, all the things that they're trying to do to compete. <laughs> and it's like such a, they don't realize what a privilege that is, you know, to have somebody massaging your legs or, you know, doing <laughs> they ain't doing that when you graduate. I got news. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, but I think it's a really interesting because I've talked to quite a few athletes and they really struggle with the transition out of, you know, being a college athlete and that identity, you know, leaving it behind. Um, so I, I think that struggle is real, regardless and, of the sport you play. And, and, and I think it's, I think now more than ever, uh, I started playing football when I was 10, but as I said, I chickened out when I was eight, nine years old. Now kids are playing at five and six years old. It's all they know. And, and now when you have specialization and you have kids who've been playing the same sport, for, for their entire life, as far as they can remember, they've always been a volleyball player. They've always been a softball player. They, they've always been that football player. And then it's taken away. And it is a huge, I, you know, I, I talk a lot about depression, especially uh, with, with, you know, the, the higher you go up, in, especially in my sport, football, the more you're going to drop, be dropped off a cliff. And the higher you go, the higher that cliff is. And, and the, the longer that fall is to try to find out who you are without the game. And, and it's a very real phenomenon for a lot of athletes, no matter what sport. You're exactly right. 
because it becomes such a part of your identity, your routine, uh, how you see yourself, how you na navigate other parts of your life. And when that's no longer there, when that's gone, you really do have to start, almost start over again. Like, who am I without this game? That's why I say that in the book. Yeah, and you know, so now like moving into when you do start to transition to the Center for the Study of Sport and Society, and you meet Richard Lapchick, Jack. Well, you knew Jackson Cat Cats, I believe, before then, or do you just no? I met Jackson. Okay. And so you have these two men that really impact you um, on how they view and they teach you so much just by watching them. And I um, want you to talk a little bit about those two. And then I also, because it seems to me, um, this gentleman, Byron Hurt, really impacted you even on a deeper level. So can you talk about those three men and how they open up this new conversation inside of you? So I was, I was the kid who I used to walk to high school and I would walk and think and pray and walk and think and pray and always had a story to tell in my head and, and was very aware. That's why I said I kind of felt like I controlled some of that part of my identity. But then I met Richard Lapchick and I always say that I wasn't a quarterback, I was a black quarterback. And so racism in sport was my issue. It was the issue that I grew up with. Um, I was very, very well versed in, in all of Muhammad Ali and all the, uh, um, you know, John Carlos and, and all the, the sort of the racism in sport and, and the activism around that. So Richard Lapchick, who was the son of Joe Lapchick, Joe Lapchick was the first head coach and general manager of the New York, New York Knicks in 1950, signed Matt Clifton to a contract, first African-American in the NBA. And so Richard Lapchick, his son, saw this, his father and everything his father went through um, and dedicated his life to the issue of racism in sport. And so here I was going to Northeastern to work with Richard Lapchick, this white man who's doing work around racism in sport, which was my issue personally. And then I met Jackson. And, and Richard Lapchick continues to be uh, not just a, a, a dear friend, but a mentor and, and an inspiration in my life of this man who looked at his privilege, who looked at his, his voice, and, um, and raised issues that other people were afraid to talk about, and, and looked at his own privilege in, in, that, in that paradigm. And so that was such an inspiration. And then I got to, to Northeastern, and I met Jackson. And, and when, when Richard was the white man addressing racism, Jackson was the man addressing sexism and misogyny and, and, and gender. And so Jackson opened my eyes to, to gender. As I say in the book, that Jackson made me realize um, how to use a privilege I didn't know I had on an issue that I didn't know was mine. And the issue of men's violence against women and understanding that we as men it's our issue. It's not a women's issue. It's a men's issue. We're the perpetrators of that violence. We're silent about that violence. It is our issue, as well as women's issue. It is our issue. And so when I met Jackson, who opened my eyes to this issue that if I went back in my life, I saw violence against women in high school, in college, in when I was playing professional. I saw it. It was in my life. It was in the lives of women in my life. Um, and yet I didn't think of it as my issue. And so when Jackson opened my eyes to that, I was like, whoa. And then uh, Byron Hurt, who was working with Jackson, was an African-American quarterback, played at Northeastern University, left Northeastern, well, was still at Northeastern, but left football to join Jackson and MVP at the center. And I had spent most of my life looking at race as being the number one lever on my life personally. And so being a black quarterback was a big part of that identity, as was Jack, uh, uh, Byron, a black quarterback at Northeastern. So we started talking about the racism that we experienced as quarterbacks. And it made me realize that as bad as it was, 
I went to Syracuse University on a full scholarship. I came out with no debt. I came out with an education. I came out with, with uh, a, a network of people that includes Joe Biden and Mark Emmert as former as alums of, of, of Syracuse University and the people that I've been afforded to be around. There's a tremendous amount of privilege, economic privilege, social privilege in that affiliation. And it made me realize that my gender was more of an adverse impact on my life than my race. Mm. That's a hard thing for uh, for a lot of people to, to to kind of wrap their brains around because because racism is so demonstrative and, and so obvious and and we still see the regular carnage. I mean, when we see people being shot in their homes because they're black, I mean, the racism is still so very obvious. Mm. But the racism did not hold me back and does not hold back men as much as the narrow ways in which we define ourselves as men, and that transcends race. And that transcends religion. It transcends so many different other ways in which we identify. Is that we as men collectively, I don't care what background you come from, when I ask that question, what does it mean to me to be a man, the definition is very narrow. And it's very narrowing to who we are as people. And so Jackson helped me understand gender, but Byron helped me put it in, in, the, in the context of this other thing that I thought was so important and so, uh, so much of an impact on my life. It really was not as much of an impact as gender. Wow, it's so interesting. And you know, like, do you remember some of the things that hit you that they would say to you that really you're like, whoa, I never thought of that. Like, do you remember some of the big lessons that you got from Byron, or not lessons, but maybe conversations? You know, I, I, Byron said something once that that has always been very important to me, um, because we can be in, in, as activists and as educators uh, around issues that we see very clearly. Um, we can be very forceful and judgmental in that, in that, how we deliver that. And, and, and Byron said once, and very, he was always, one of the things I loved about Byron was that as brilliant as a human being and as compassionate as a human being, he's very generous of spirit. And he said, you know, you can't expect people to know or act on something that they've never been taught. And I thought that was really profound because I felt like as men and as football players, we were taught to be a man. Like we were taught so much about that. And then when I dissected that, I'm like, wow, he's, that's really quite profound because there's so many things that we have not been deliberately taught to look at. Just like the family member who did not see what his language was saying. Yeah. Uh, understand what his language was saying is that we haven't been deliberately taught. Unless something is deliberately pointed out to you, you don't learn. I mean, that, that's what coaching is. You, you point things out deliberately over and over and over, right? To teach rote behavior and understanding. And so... Uh, that was probably one of the most profound things that, that I got from, from Byron. And, and, you know, during that time, I, I was so blessed to be in Boston with those three men. And then there were a whole host of other women uh, and men in Boston at the time uh, that were just doing amazing work around gender um, and men's violence against women that, that I just soaked in so much information from so many amazing people in that city. And so what... What are some of the strategies you're currently working on right now, um, Don, around violence against women? You know, there is, and I talk about this a lot in the book, there is a shift that needs to happen in this conversation to engage men in a sustainable way. We know now, I say now that, that if I did a workshop for an hour, I would spend, you know, 15 years ago, I would spend 45 minutes explaining to men that there's a problem. I don't have to do that anymore. We understand there's a problem, and we have Me Too, and we have Title IX, and we have all the different ways in which men are acknowledging 
um, th this issue. And so we know it's there. Now we have state laws, for example, in New York State. Every corporation, every company has to do sexual harassment in the workplace. We have Title IX. Now we have these mandates on college campuses. And so we know there's a problem. The sustainable discussion and then the sustainable dialogue for men is what's in it for men in this conversation. And, and, and part of what's in it for men is everything I've been talking about. It's this growth that we as men need to go through, where we need to give each other permission to live in our wholeness, where we need to start to live and actualize the wholeness of masculinity. I refer to it as aspirational masculinity. It's, not, it's someplace we have not been to yet, where we actually, as men, are allowed to live and give each other permission to live in our uh, uh, unashamed wholeness. And that conversation is part of, of my work. But there's also, you know, I, I have this, this really strong feeling about how we address these issues on college campus. I think there needs to be dramatic reform of how these issues are addressed in higher education. Dramatic reform. We are still doing, we are still doing um, the activism that has brought this, this issue to light. We need to start doing education. We need to get away from the activism and move towards education and educating young people how to have healthy relationships, how to understand masculinity in a more healthy and whole way. Uh, and, and, and stop doing, I, I, I think that, that Sexual Assault Awareness Month is a wonderful thing. It was, it was created by PCOG, Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, many years ago. It's good for rape crisis uh, agencies off campus. On campus makes zero sense. Stop doing awareness of the problem in April. Let's doing solutions and education, just like we address everything else. If we want excellence in the classroom, we teach it. If we want excellence in athletics, we teach it. If we want excellence for our young people in relationships and in how they identify with themselves and how they identify and love each other, we have to teach that. And we need to start moving towards that and getting away from the activism that we've done so long on college campuses. Uh, that's, I really do agree with you 100%. I don't even need to add anything to that comment. Um, and what are, you know, when it comes to like some of the stuff um, we're talking about violence against women and also like just some strategies around how do we, uh, like there's been this fight for so long on how we're losing women in coaching and we're, how we're, you know, women aren't coaching men. And now, you know, more and more women are coaching men, you know, mm -hmm. like we have, you know, like Buddy Tevin's got a female assistant at Dartmouth for football and, you know, we've got women in the NBA and, and so on and so forth. And I just, you know, I just wonder, and I know a lot of it's like, you know, people hire people that look like them or that are like them. And so the majority of the athletic directors are male. And I do think, you know, it, it has to, we have to kind of look at our hiring practices around women. It's got to be mm -hmm. different to recruit a woman than to recruit mm -hmm. a man to a job. Um, so I feel like there's uh, strategies that are also, you know, around the violence against women, which is definitely a huge, important conversation and educational piece. And it's also a conversation to me just of what are the other ways that sexism shows up and racism show up in our college athletic departments. I mean, you know, you look at the lack of women in coaching, the lack of the people of color, it's even less, you know? And so how do we start to influence and educate and make change with those areas as well? You know, I, I think if you look at higher education across the board, if you look at the, at the level of college presidents and, and then for coming, coming further down to provosts and deans, uh, to, to faculty and tenured faculty, it is, it skews uh, very, very much white and male. And, and so there's a, a tremendous amount of work that needs to happen in higher education. And I think there are certain, 
there are certain areas where, um, and, and sports is one of them, where it, it, it has been the, the, uh, the environment for, for, for white men primarily uh, who have owned sports in, in, in American culture. And I think it is one of those last things, uh, those institutions that, that major change needs to happen. And I, and I think that we're at a period now where, one, I think the sports culture as a whole, I think is challenged. Uh, in so many different ways, mm -hmm. because we've gotten away from what is what what's the purpose of sports, and and I think we've gotten away from that. And I think we're, there's a real challenge right now because there's been so much money. You asked me earlier if I've read a book. The first book that I wrote that I never published was, was titled "I Thought It Mattered," and and the title and the reason why that was the title was I thought all the rhetoric that I heard in sports mattered. All the Vince Lombardi winning, winning is everything. It's the only thing. There's no I in team and all that rhetoric and all that stuff that, that, that sports that, that made sports what it was in our culture. I thought it mattered. And a lot of it was BS. A lot of it was, you know, this notion that athletes were role models was also BS. If you go back to, to the athletes of the, of the 50s and 60s in my sport in football, they were Beer drinking, I'm talking about on the field, <laughs> smoking, womenizing. I mean, right? I mean, they could not withstand the scrutiny of today's athletes. And so there, there's a, a reckoning, I think, in sports. What is the purpose of sports? What is the role of sports in our lives? And we've made it a business. And that business has distorted the way that it's functioned in our lives, which is one of the reasons why women and people of color have been kept out of the business, kept out of, of, of in, 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 in so many other ways, have been kept out of, out of, of different corporate boardrooms and, and other places where it was seen as a commodity. Yeah. But it's still seen as, as that commodity. And, and, and we've lost, I think, we've lost complete sight of the role of sports in the lives of young people. And, and, and I think that's also where the, the reckoning is coming now uh, that's related to the issue of violence. Well, I think we're seeing it as a corporate space because of, of Me Too. You're hearing men say, I, well, I don't know if I can hire a woman because I'm going to be accused or she's going to, right? I, wanna, I don't want to. First of all, if I was a, a board member of a corporation and I heard my CEO saying, I'm afraid to hire women or, so, or see somebody in leadership saying, I'm afraid to hire, then you have the wrong leader, right? Because one, you have someone who's a liability to you, a ticking time bomb who can't control himself. And two, that person is passing on talent. Right, because there are more women coming out of higher education than before. You can say you can't hire women because you're afraid. Then you are passing on talent, and you should not be in a leadership position of anything if you if you are going to pass on talent because you can't control yourself. Right, and so part of that narrative is going is going to fall away. It must fall away, and the activism of of women who have put these issues on the table and kept them there is going to move this needle. And men are going to have to come along. Right now, we're doing it in a very very stubborn way. And, and you're seeing people like Buddy Keegan, who's a real leader, who's okay. going to say, I'm going to give a woman an opportunity to be on my staff. And that's going to happen because there are men out there who do want to do the right thing. Yeah, no doubt. And it was really interesting um, when, I, when I interviewed Buddy uh, recently, his podcast is coming out this week. And when I interviewed him and I asked him, you know, because he was talking about how qualified these women are, how great workers they are. And, you know, he's been very scrutinized for this. Like, hey, you're taking a job away from a man, you know, like he's right. gotten a lot of scrutiny, you know, like, and history repeats itself, right? I mean, right. the same stuff was said when we were hiring African-Americans. You're taking a job away from the white guys, right? Right. But I thought it was really interesting because I asked him, what did he feel was the effect of having a woman? Like, what did she bring that was different? 
mm-hmm. and his male coaches. And he said, you know, he goes, I feel like there's a calming effect. He goes, I don't know why. He goes, but I feel like there's a calming effect. And so it was really interesting because I then I interviewed like a half an hour later, his new assistant, Jen King. And I asked her the same question. I said, what do you think you bring that's different, you know, to the locker room than what, you know, what kind of thing? She goes, you know, I noticed that I feel like as a woman, I had this calming effect. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny because she'd only been there four days. She hadn't had a chance to talk to Buddy about this. She had just gotten right, a job. Right, right. Um, his other assistant got a job with the Buffalo Bills, um, Callie. And so he, she was brand new. So I just think that was really an interesting uh, thing that they both used that same exact word, you know, as far as that. So uh, in closing, let's get it, uh, wrapping this up a little bit, uh, Don. If you had to look back and give your 19-year-old self some advice, knowing what you know now, what do you think you would tell him going into Syracuse University? Oh, goodness. I, I would have, if I knew the path that I would have taken, I would have, I would have told him to pay more attention to everything around him. Uh, I was pretty good at um, separating myself from from football um, and and finding my space and and finding my my lane, if you will. Um, but I was, um, but I did that in solitude. I didn't do that in, in reaching out. I would have spent a lot more time on campus in my free time and a lot more time connecting to faculty and connecting to other students. Um, as difficult as that, and I think it's a hard thing for a college football player to do at that level. Uh, but I would, that's, that's, I would have said, pay more attention to all those things around you. Um, and and in, in, with the same rigor that you do football. Great. So I'm going to have, a, I have a few rapid fire questions for okay. you. What would you consider the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, Coach Mack, play within yourself. Got it. What's a common mistake you think coaches make? I think it's, uh, what you said a little, a little while ago is, is um, they fail to, to teach and think that, that there's, uh, inspiration is more important than teaching. Great. A common mistake talented athletes make? Oh, that, that their talent is going to carry them. <laughs> 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 the talent is going to carry them through. <laughs> What is something unique most people don't know about you? Oh, um, I started to say this a minute ago when, when, when you were talking about um, uh, the coach having a calming effect. Uh, I used to listen to six songs before every football game from college through the pros, and two of the six songs were from the film Yentl. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Do you remember so, what songs they were? Because I loved Yentl. Oh, okay. So, Piece of Sky and Where Is It Written? Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> if you could have lunch with anyone dead or alive, who would that be? Oh, you make me cry, my dad. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, and you just say you have a lot of things you'd like to talk to him about, don't you? Oh, just to see him again. Just yeah. See him again. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, great coaches know how to fill in the blank. You know, can I give you a, a, a good Coach Matt quote? Sure. Uh, 
because uh, I, I really thought he was he was an honest person about his coaching. He said he said when you're a young coach, you think it's ninety percent you, ten percent the kids. He said then you get a little bit older and you think it, maybe it's fifty fifty. And he said, then you get wiser and you realize it's 10% you and 90% the kid. You get them ready and you get out of the way. And I <laughs> thought that was brilliant because that's, that's... That's a fantastic quote. I like that a lot. I love it too. Do you have a mantra you live by? I don't. Um, Do you have a saying or anything that you like? That no. You I, okay. I really... I really don't. I, you know, I try not to live my life with, with a lot of regret. And I, I see even the worst things that I've ever done in my life and the worst mistakes and the worst decisions I've ever made were all learning, learning stuff, building blocks and, 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 uh, and learning. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, besides exercise, a healthy part of your daily ritual is? Disconnection. And, and now more than ever. Turn the TV off, turn the phone off, disconnect. What's one of the biggest challenges you find in your current work? Apathy. Mm, true. Three words you hope people use to describe your life legacy are? Love, caring, and selflessness. A lot of your teammates described you as that. I watched the video for your Hall of Fame induction, and <laughs> it was really nice. I mean, the, we could tell you, your teammates very much respected you as a leader and as a person. That's because I didn't hang out with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just, Don, I love your book. I highly recommend it to everybody listening. Um, it's, it's just so insightful, um, very touching in some different points. and. Um, I guarantee anyone who reads it, male, female, does not matter, will get some amazing nuggets just about what it means to be a human and how we're all just trying to figure it out, right, Don? <laughs> we're all just trying to figure it out no matter what the messages we are that we get as we're, um, we're growing up in this world. So, and I really appreciate you spending time with me uh, today, Don. Um, thank you so much for the work you're doing. It's really important work. Thank you, it's always good to see you and I appreciate you having me on. Hi coaches, thank you so much for joining us on this Coaches on the Rise episode. There's a few little things that we'd really like to ask you to do for us that might seem little, but they're huge for True North Sports. First, if you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe. And we'd really like to hear what you have to say about our podcast by writing a short review. The second thing is please share our podcast with other coaching colleagues that you have. And the third thing is, Join us on social media. Follow the different programs, um, things that we're offering through True North Sports for all coaches of all sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. And until next month, keep shining bright, coaches.